Morning, Harvest. Well, this is uh, launch Sunday, um, the first Sunday after Labor Day, and uh, we're uh, excited for the new ministry year that's uh, upon us, 2023-2024, and uh, this is the start of our 23rd ministry year. And I was reflecting on this um, with various groups, our staff team and, and such, but just thinking about how much has been entrusted to us as a church, how much God has put into our hands uh, to steward and to manage for His glory. And our pledge is uh, very simply this, is to be faithful with what God has given to us this year. That's, that's like our whole goal, is just that we would be faithful with what God has given to us. It is um, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 2 that says it's, it's um, required of, of those uh, who are stewards to be found faithful. And we want to be faithful with the thing that God has entrusted to us. And reflecting also in that same passage, it, it, it speaks of, um, a rem- as a reminder to us, what do you have that you have not been given? And we've been given everything. Everything has come to us from the Lord. And we're grateful for what he's given to us. And we want to be uh, faithful with that. We haven't put any particular theme on this year. But if there is a theme, it's let's just be faithful with what God has given to us. Amen? Amen. All right, that was all bonus material. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Just a little extra for you today. That's all. Um, so let's get into uh, God's word. Uh, Jordan's already pointed us to the book of Jude. If you're still looking for it, just find Revelation at the very back of your Bible. Turn back one page, and probably in your Bible it's one page. Uh, Jude is uh, just 25 verses, and we're going to spend five weeks uh, looking at this short uh, but very um, intense and punchy letter uh, that Jude wrote. And um, let, me, let me just start with a little confession. I'll just start with a little confession. What, what, I, what I know about construction um, is not much. And um, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. I'm not, I'm not Bob the Builder. My dad's name was Bob. He was Bob the Builder. I'm not Bob the Builder. Um, he passed none of that on to me. I, I don't build. I built some things like Lego and Ikea furniture. I've, I've built stuff uh, over the years. Uh, but even though I'm not a builder, um, I, I am not without, I'm not, I'm not stupid, I'm not a stupid man, so I know what's, <laughs> nine o'clock was so much nicer. <laughs> I'm not a stupid man, so I know I'm not without some grasp of what's necessary to build something. I have some understanding of that. For example, I know you need a solid foundation. I know that you need quality building materials. I know that you need structural plans and you need to follow them. I know that you need plumb lines and you need to follow those. I know that you need skilled trades to do the actual building. And if you do things right, if you apply all of that to the building of your structure, the building will last. And if not, disaster. Now, I tell you that because the same is true for our faith. And in fact, it's a metaphor that you find throughout the scripture, this idea that our faith also is a building. That is the Christian life. And the dangers are the same. If we fail to build in the right, in the right way, then the structure will collapse and your faith will be ruined. In fact, just one reference, we're not going to go into it, but if you're taking notes, Matthew 7, uh, 24 to 27, right in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the wise and foolish builders. That's just one place where we talk about or see the building as a metaphor for our faith and our Christian life. 
And that idea of a building built improperly that collapsed, that's the warning behind this new series in the book of Jude. Because it's common today to refer to those whose faith has failed them as those who have deconstructed. That's the word. Either deconstruction is either the intentional tearing down of their faith or the unintentional collapse of their faith in the face of various pressures. By the way, this is not a new phenomenon. We can look back in the Scriptures themselves and see those who professed faith in Christ at some point, but then deconstructed their faith. Some examples from the New Testament include Demas and Hymenaeus and Philetus. Others who at one time said they believed the gospel, professed faith in Christ, but then saw their faith collapse into the rubble, walking away from the faith they once embraced. Well, the message of Jude is an appeal to Christians, and this is the phrase we'll hear in the letter, to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, to fight for what we believe to ensure that what is built on has structural integrity and will last. And in some cases, we may need to intentionally deconstruct. There may be people here in the room watching on the live stream. There may be some who are needing to tear some things down and restart. You may be hurting. You may be questioning your faith. it's, It's not... Shocking at all to think that every single one of us as Christians, at some point, at multiple points in our walk with Christ, might have deep questions about our faith and might need to rebuild. So in some cases, we may need to, we may need to intentionally deconstruct, remove the faulty building materials, use better construction methods, take it down to the footings if necessary with the goal of having a well-built, structurally sound faith that stands to the very end. So that's what Jude's about. Let's turn our attention to the text. Again, five messages in this. We're going to do the first four verses here this morning. So you follow along in your Bible as I read the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right, on the screen and in your notes, you'll notice this is what we're going after. As a Christian, I must contend for the faith, uh, first of all, uh, by trusting what God says about me. Trusting what God says about me. Now, let's start by recognizing that, the, that, let, that, the, uh, that Jude is a letter. It's a letter that he wrote. It's not just a letter. It's a letter built around a rhetorical technique, a, a rhetorical teaching style. He, he's, he's using a point-counterpoint argument to make 
uh, his argument before them about contending for the faith. So it's structured kind of as an oratory, as something would be presented orally, but he's written it up and sent it out as a letter. And because this is a letter, there's the standard salutation off the top where he puts his name first, just so they all know, this is from him, this is from Jude. Now Jude, let's find out who he is. Uh, Jude is, uh, the Hebrew form of that name is Judah or Judea. The Greek form of that Jude is a short form of the Greek form of that, and the Greek form of that is Judas. Now, can you think of any reason at all why Jude might have shortened his name to Jude from Judas? I mean, after the debacle of the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of that, you wouldn't want to be going around. I'm sure a lot, a lot of moms, moms and dads decided they weren't calling their kids Judas anymore. And so he shortens it. He's got, you know what? I'm going to be known... You can just call me Jude from now on. And so that's who he is. It's Judah. It's Judas. He calls himself, notice, a servant of Jesus Christ. Our English translations more often than not go with servant, but it's really the word slave. It's the Greek word doulos, and it is chattel slavery that's in view here. Uh, He's saying, I'm owned by Jesus Christ. I'm identified by Jesus Christ. He's my master. He uses that word, in fact, in verse 4 to refer to Christ. He's my master. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I do his bidding. And in fact, we could, we could just step back right now and just say, you know, that's a great way for each of us to see ourselves and, and to introduce ourselves. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I do his bidding. He owns me. He's my Lord. He's my master. Jude says that, which is really surprising given what we'll find out next about him. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and he says, and a brother of James. Now, James is likely his oldest brother, his older brother. He was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He wrote the New Testament book that bears his name. You can read about James in the book of Acts. And so both of them uh, Jude and James were the half brother, were half brothers of Jesus himself. So Mary and Joseph were their parents. And um, he doesn't say, by the way, when he's writing this letter, he could say, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and by the way, also his half brother. He could have written it like that. But that would be kind of braggy name dropping, wouldn't you think? To say that, that you were Jesus' brother, and, and he doesn't do that. Instead, he cites his brother James, who's again a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he says, really what he's saying is, I'm, I'm the Judas Jude, I'm the, I'm the Jude whose brother is James, I'm not like any of the other Judases out there, I just want you to know which Judas I am, which Jude I am. So that's why he identifies himself that way. And by doing so, he also places himself under James in terms of his prominence and his place in the church. Because he's acknowledging his older brother, he's giving him the place of prominence. It's not that he's known by being my brother, I'm known by being his brother. And I love the humility in that because any of us who went to high school but had older siblings, that wasn't me by the way, I was the older sibling, but by the time my brother was going through high school, he was known as Brad, the brother of Todd. Now how many younger siblings right now are being triggered by this story? Because when you went to high school, that was you. You were known by your older sibling. Anybody here? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. I'm sorry. We can have counselors available after the service for you. (laughs) 
So that was Jude. He's, I says, I'm, 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 I'm James's younger brother. He's the one with the authority. I'm just letting you know who I am. But he's probably also citing him to say, James would endorse this letter, and, and it's coming kind of with this quasi-apostolic authority as well. And it's also good to understand at this point that as Jude is writing this, he is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. We find out, we know that this is included in the canon of Scripture because the Holy Spirit inspired it, something Jude could not possibly have known at the time. And so, as is true whenever we're reading the Scripture, this is God speaking to us through Jude. And what God says, all of that, to get us to this point, what God says about the recipients of this letter in this letter inscription is that they are, notice in verse 1 now, they are three things. They are called, they are beloved in God the Father, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, what's cool about this inscription is that there's a past, present, and future aspect to it. In the past, once for all, as believers, you were called unto salvation by God Himself. You received the forgiveness of sins as a result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You were called to that salvation by God. In the present and always, in an ongoing matter, you are loved unconditionally by God. And in anticipation of what is to come, notice you are kept or preserved by Jesus Christ until the parousia or the appearing of Jesus or our own physical death when we see Him face to face. In every sense, past, present, future, called, loved, and kept, we are gripped by our Savior. And in our Savior, we have absolutely everything we need. This is critical to our understanding of who we are, to our identity. And it's going to be difficult for us to reconstruct a life that's worth living, to build a spiritual building in our life if we don't first believe what God says about us. And identity is the core issue. Will we believe what God says about us? If we go all the way back to the beginning, the serpent had Eve twisting in the wind over who she was, over this matter of identity. She was questioning, because of the serpent, she was questioning what God had said about who she was and what God was saying about her environment. And he convinced her that what God said about her wasn't enough. He convinced her that she would be like God. Eve, what God made you is not enough. And it's a crushing distortion of what God had actually said about her. The initial questioning of Eve's identity led to her subsequent act of rebellion against God, which plunged her and all of humanity onto this devastating path of sin, death, and destruction. 
Satan successfully led Eve to deconstruct her faith. Now, if we're to avoid that, here's, here's what we must believe about ourselves in order to build a faith in a sustainable, long-lasting way. We have to come to an understanding that we're made in the image of God. But that that image of God in us has been marred by sin, and that brought both physical death upon us, something God never intended, and also spiritual death or separation from Him. That came upon all of humanity. We're born into it. The only remedy for that is for each individual to confess their own sin to God, to confess their own need of the Savior, and to believe that Jesus Christ alone can be that Savior who can save us on the basis of His sacrificial death on the cross and His victorious resurrection from the dead. And that alone, that is the only narrative that allows the image of God, the marred image of God in us to be restored. Step by step over the course of an entire lifetime, that's what we're trying to do. I want more of the image of God in me. And then at that moment, we pass from this life and into eternity, the image of God perfected in us once again. We have to believe that. We have to trust what God says about us. I've been reading a number, number of books in anticipation of this series, and I'm going to give you a book list along the way. Uh, but one of uh, those books is a collection of articles um, entitled, Before You Lose Your Faith. And Trevin Wax uh, writes one of the opening paragraphs, or one of the opening articles in that. And I, I just want to paraphrase a little bit of what he says here. I'm not going to quote him directly. But he makes the point that one of the key characteristics of those who have deconstructed their faith is that they've shifted their focus away from God and His Word. Now, again, if I can come back to Eve for just a second and say that's exactly what ser the serpent did with her. He got her focus away from God and His Word and onto herself. We end up focusing what, on what He says about us, about life, about sin, and about all of it. Instead of listening to what God is saying, we're now beginning to listen to a different story. We take the emphasis off of God and what He says, and we put the emphasis on ourselves. And we create this new narrative where we're the center of the story, a story about us. And it provides us with meaning and significance, we think. That's what we tell ourselves. But this narrative excludes or at the very, in the very best scenario, modifies what God says, what God's narrative is about us. And when I think about that, that shifting of the narrative from God to me, all I can hear in my ears is this. You will be like God. You will be like God. It's the same temptation. Now, there's more here. Jude continues on on this matter of identity. Like most letters, Jude includes a benediction, and there's a, a lengthy, very rich benediction we'll look, at, we'll look at in the last message, verses 24 and 25, but there's a little teaser up front here. And he says this in verse 2, may mercy, and this is really what commentators call a wish prayer, 
It's a prayer I pray for you. This is what I wish for you. He says, verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And again, he's speaking to God's immeasurable, continued and immeasurable kindness. That's his mercy. I want you to have God's immeasurable kindness in your life. It speaks to God's unconditional affection. He loves us. And these two together, mercy and love, resulting in reconciliation, that we would have peace with God. And his hope in saying this is that they'll experience these things, mercy, love, and peace, not just experience them once, not just experience them in in some small way, but that they would experience these in full measure, in all their fullness. It's a fact. Just go through them as a fact. It is a fact that God is merciful. But are you living your life in such a way that you are are reveling in the full measure of God's kindness for you? Do you notice his kindness? Do you acknowledge his kindness? Do you see it happening in your life? It is a fact that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Are we at peace, leveraging the freedom that God has given to us from sin, freedom from sin, freedom from death, or are we still shackled to it? It is a fact that God loves us. Are we basking in that love? Are we so aware? of the love of God in our lives that we wouldn't think for a second of going to look for love anywhere else. Are we so aware that God loves us, the depth of how he loves us, that even if every single human being on the planet hated us, it would be enough that God loves us. That's what Jude wants them to know about themselves. And I hope that's true for you. I hope you have that identity. I hope that's welling up inside of you even as I talk about it right now. And if it isn't, it can be yours. That is your identity. Trust what God says about you. You know, as a little side note here, Sometimes we read the letters in the New Testament, we just kind of skip over the first part because that's just the salutation. But we've just learned that it's so intentional and there's so much gold to be mined out in these salutations at the start of the letter that every word was chosen by Jude with great intent that we would hear something about who we are in Christ. So as a Christian, see this next, as a Christian, I must contend for the faith by trusting what God says about me, and then secondly, understanding what I believe. Look at verse 3. Beloved, this is really where the letter starts. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I mean, he wanted to write a theological letter teaching them about the gospel, their common salvation, Just, just a nice letter just with some teaching in it. But then he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
And now he's having to reactively respond to an issue that he's heard about, that he feels he needs to respond to, rather than proactively instructing them about their common salvation of the gospel. Now, it's coming up on our anniversary in another week, and, and I'm thinking about the history of our church, and I so appreciate the seasons in our church's history where it was basically peaceful, and, and I was able to just spend time proactively teaching. We could just go through portions of Scripture and just learn and become greater disciples, greater knowledge of who God is, and just grow in our faith. I love those seasons where you're not dealing with any issues or any problems or any conflicts in the church where you can just proactively teach the gospel. As you can imagine, over 22 years, we've had a few seasons where it has not been like that. And I'm glad that we're not currently in a season like that. Please don't think that this is any kind of announcement for, oh, we're going through a lot of trouble right now. We're just able to proactively teach and build up the church right now. But there have been seasons where we had to react to issues, to conflict, to problems that were happening in the church, and that's what's happening here for Jude. It's not surprising, by the way. Churches go through difficulties. Individual Christians go through difficulties. Families, Christian families go through difficulties. In this life, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. So it's a guarantee. It's not whether you go through trouble, because you are going to go through trouble. It's how you go through the trouble. Will you do it biblically? So Jude's trying to help them. And he appeals to them in the midst of this crisis to contend for the faith. You see that in verse 3. Come back to that phrase in just a moment. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this faith is the long-held, well-established gospel message that's been preached from the beginning. The promises of which, by the way, having just quoted Genesis, the promise of the gospel first appears in Genesis 3.15. So this is the long-held understanding of God coming as a Savior for His people. Now, back to that previous phrase, to contend for the faith. Jude explains here the purpose for his letter. There's no mystery about why this letter was written. He's appealing to them to contend for the faith. And when we see it written like this, because there's a lot of different uses of the word faith, but if you see it with the definite article in front of it, the faith, then you know that this is the doctrine that they believe. This is the set of core beliefs that form the foundation of personal faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of different ways that you can express the core doctrines. And uh, one way uh, that I have been aware of now for uh, four decades is, um, I'm going to give it to you right now, the five gospel-centered essentials, the five essentials for any gospel-centered Christian, gospel-centered church. And I learned these back uh, when I was in college. Verbal inspiration, speaking to the Scriptures, being inspired by God and carrying the authority of God. Verbal inspiration. Virgin birth. We have to believe in the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ through Mary, uh, the Virgin and born of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the vicarious atonement of Christ. That is His, super, uh, his uh, substitutionary atonement or His sacrifice on our behalf. His life in place of ours. That's the vicarious atonement. His victorious resurrection uh, from the grave and his visible return, something we continue to wait for. And I can say with great confidence that those who are deconstructing their faith, 
They're going to come to dismantle these very beliefs that we have. This is what's at stake. Alyssa Childers, in her um, book, a fantastic book, Another Gospel, uh, she writes this, deconstruction, just so we understand what this is, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian, and by Christian, it would be great if she had put it in quotes here, she means those who professed to be Christians, not necessarily those who are Christians, but those who at least for a season played the part. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remained there. But others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. Now, I want to I say something about the last part of this. It almost never resembles the Christianity formerly knew. And sometimes that's a really good thing. Because a lot of the forms of Christianity that we have seen over the past decades, for example, has not resembled gospel Christianity or biblical Christianity. A lot of traditions have been added in. A lot of the ways of man have been added into the church. And churches have been very, and Christians have been very distracted because of all the extra trappings that we have put on top of it. And so there's a lot of Christians today who need to do some deconstructing of the way they've lived out their faith and get back to the basics. In fact, Trevenwax says this, a reconstructed faith will require recovering Christian orthodoxy, not departing from it. We need to go back to the five essentials of a gospel-centered church or Christian. I mean, if we're to complete the process of deconstruction and reconstruction, then we have to dig down to the right foundation. We have to assemble the right building materials. We have to reconstruct according to the best methods. If you and I are to avoid a collapse of our faith, we have to reaffirm the basics of biblical orthodoxy, even while we might be tearing down and throwing out a lot of the traditions and trappings of how we've expressed our faith. In other words, we need to know what's essential and what's not. In another book, again, I'll give you this, uh, The Great Dechurching. This is a statistical analysis of why so many are leaving the church. And it is a uh, statistical fact if you look at almost every denomination, certainly mainline denominations, but this is even true on the evangelical side of things, that almost, with some notable exceptions, almost every evangelical denomination is also in steep decline. And that's the point of this book is is to get at the reasons for that. So the authors make the point in the great dechurching that the dissonance the dissonance that deconstructionists, those who are deconstructing their faith, the dissonance that they have with the church hints at their lack of understanding, listen, of gospel principles. In other words, the reason why they're deconstructing is because they don't understand the gospel. They might have been raised in the church, they might have been raised in a Christian home, but they don't understand the basics of the gospel. And this is exacerbated by, or for younger generations. I'm going to say, first of all, let me just say this. 
This is, a, this is something that's been going on for decades. And so I'm right on the cusp between the busters and the boomers at my age of 59. And, and this goes back to people my age in their 50s who are not following Christ today, though they were raised in Christian homes because of things that they saw and because of a lack of understanding of the gospel. So we're not just talking about millennials who have rejected their faith. This is going back generations now uh, to those who are even in their 50s. But here, here's the thing, and this is going to be hard. You don't, you don't come to Harvest if you just want soft messages that are going to make you feel good. Everybody good? This is exacerbated for younger generations who saw their believing parents focus on non-essential practices that distracted from the gospel. This is what the surveys are finding. There's a whole long list of reasons why generations are walking away from the faith that they were raised in. Here's some, I'm just going to give you four of them because I don't think you can handle all of them. Not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. I, I, my parents said that they believed this and that I didn't see any gentleness. I didn't see any kindness. I didn't see any generosity. They failed to demonstrate love. I just didn't see the fruit of the Spirit in my parents. Secondly, a preoccupation with the culture wars. My parents were always signing this petition or doing this protest or running down this group of people or making these comments about what's going on in the culture and they were always fighting those battles. And the next generation failed to see the gospel in that. Thirdly, they failed to see their parents listen to them, to have their parents listen, just to have a conversation. Instead, they were saying, my parents just shut me down. They never want to ask, answer the questions. They said, you just have to believe it. Instead of having meaningful dialogues about their faith, our faith is robust and it can withstand any argument and, and, and any scrutiny. But parents were stiff-arming their kids. Not wanting to talk about these things and this fourth one, That a generation rejected the gospel because their parents, because of their parents' racial attitudes or actions. Well, I love Jesus. I love the church. I don't know about all these immigrants. I don't know about this neighbor. There's this guy at work. Well, you know, he's from. And your kids heard that. And they said, that's not the gospel. That's not any kind of faith that I want to have. Ask yourself, when the unbelievers in my life, your children can be included in that. Your children can make professions of faith and harvest kids age four, five, six. Maybe they're believers, maybe they're not, I don't know. When your kids who are school age or teenagers or in their 20s or, or, or the other unbelievers in your life, your neighbors, your coworkers, your extended family members, when they see you, when the unbelievers in your life see you, when they look at you, do they see someone who is reflecting the purity and simplicity of the gospel? Or do they see someone who calls themselves a Christian but who is hell-bent on rules 
and moral imperatives and imposing your own moral standard on people who don't even know Jesus? People who are consumed with the culture wars? I mean, you may be giving people around you, you might even be giving your own children a a distorted view of the gospel by the manner in which you're living. So Judah's saying, that's what we have to fight for. That's, that's what we're contending for. To contend is, here's what one lexicon defines it as, to contend is to exert intense effort on behalf of something. Are you exerting intense effort on behalf of the gospel? Would you describe your life as a life where you're exerting the most amount of energy you exert in any particular day of the week is for the gospel? Are you struggling for the gospel? That is the Christian life. When God named Jacob and his name became the name of a nation, he called him Israel, and the name Israel means strives with God. It's a nation of people under the name of Yahweh who are wrestling with God. It's not different for you and me. We're still contending. We're still wrestling to understand this thing. We're still fighting for the gospel, Jude says. And by the way, this word, contend, In the original language, it means active and ongoing engagement in an offensive battle. We're taking the fight to the enemy, not merely in some kind of defensive posture. And what we're contending for, what we're fighting for is the faith, our doctrine, our core beliefs, the gospel of Jesus Christ, absolutely everything else in your life is secondary to that. That's got to be first for every single one of us. All right, if there's a little more gas in the tank, let's get this finished. As a Christian, I must contend for the faith by trusting what God says about me, understanding what I believe, and by being aware of threats within the church. Now, this is, this is, if it hasn't been interesting so far, this is where it gets interesting. Because so many Christians, I've already touched on this, but so many Christians are so preoccupied with the culture outside of these doors, outside of the church. We're we're so concerned with, for example, we're so concerned with government overreach. We're so concerned with the woke educational system. We're so concerned with the moral decay in our society. We're so concerned about the increasingly anti-Christian sentiment that's out there. We're so concerned about all of these things. But that is not Jude's concern. Could we, you know what, could we just step back for a second and just accept some things about our situation as Christians? The first thing we absolutely need to accept is that we are living, metaphorically, we are living in Babylon. We live in Babylon. The country is Babylon. The city is Babylon. The world is Babylon. In a metaphorical sense, that is where we live. We live in a culture that is hostile to what we believe. 
a culture hostile to the gospel. In that hostile culture, we are to live as salt and light, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. Not to convert the country, not to make Canada Christian, but to reach individuals one by one with the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, to see them converted, to see them baptized, and then to add them in to this countercultural community inside of these walls, the people called Harvest, the people called the church, who live in the midst of Babylon. Our concern ought not to be with what's outside the doors, but inside. We should be asking the question, are we okay? Are we okay? Are we with Jesus? Are we getting the gospel? Because notice what Jude says, his great concern in verse 4, his great concern is that certain people, that's a pejorative by the way, Certain people, certain people. You know what I'm talking about? Certain people. All the way through the letter, he's going to use these people, these people. And he means it in a way that we're supposed to have some scorn for them. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Let's do a little Bible study together. Where have they crept in? Who are they, where are they creeping into? The church. Exactly. So these, these stealthy individuals have covertly entered into the church. They've joined in among us. They kind of look like us. They're taking part in the things that we're doing. They're showing themselves to be part of the church, but then they're infiltrating the church with their distorted views of the gospel, their distorted beliefs. They threaten to disrupt the integrity of the church and our unity and disrupt our mission, pulling people away from the faith what we believe. And so the fight that Jude's talking about, it's not a fight with the culture. The fight is happening right here in these rows. It's happening in these rows in this room right now. It's happening online as you're listening. The fight is in here. It's in the church. This is the challenge that we face. Now, Jude wants to assure us in the latter part of verse 4, long ago they were designated for this condemnation, so their end is sealed and determined. Don't worry so much about them. These ungodly people, they're perverting the grace of God, which is a very common error that was happening. It's a broad stroke for all kinds of errors that were happening in the church, but a fuller description of this is in Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about the perversion of grace the distorting of the gospel into sensuality, which certainly refers to sexual immorality, can mean any me-centered approach to life. But in essence, it's that I can now determine my own morality because my gospel, in my gospel, in the gospel that I'm writing that's part of my narrative, in my gospel, righteousness is optional. And then, here's the big one, 
They go on to deny, notice, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They reject him by directly disowning him or indirectly by virtue of the false teaching and the lewd living, but in any event, they're denying Jesus. What's curious about this, by the way, and when we get into the letter, you'll see this, he doesn't name names. He doesn't name any particular error. We don't, we don't know exactly where this letter was written to. It, there, there's evidences in the letter that maybe it was written to a, a Syrian church like Antioch or a church in that neighborhood. Maybe it was just a church that was in. There's some Jewish flavor to this. So maybe it was among those who were still in Judea or Galilee. There's also hints there that it could have been written to the church in Alexandria, Egypt. It might be the first and only letter that we have that was written to the Egyptians. We don't really know because there's not enough clues. There's no way to really pin this down. We don't know who it was written to. We don't know what the particular issue was aside from the fact that it was false teaching. We don't have the particular brand of false teaching. No one is named here. But what happens because of that is we're not tempted to just apply it so narrowly and we're given these general principles that are going to help us determine how we can root this out in our own case. In fact, in the first century context, this was likely itinerant preachers who passed themselves off as being biblical teachers and gospel-centered in their message, but who were, in fact, false teachers. And we don't have that happening here. We're kinda, we we kind of gatekeep the, the preaching and the teaching. We've done that for more than two decades. It's not, it wouldn't be easy for someone to come in and just kind of sit in here and then kind of work their way into small groups. It, it would be very hard. There's vetting processes and we're, we're careful about all of that. We're not likely to allow someone to just creep in unnoticed. But in fact, they're here. They're here right now. They have crept in this morning unnoticed hundreds of them. In fact, if you could do me a favor right now, if you could take your phone out and just hold it up. Just take your phone out. Some of you have it out already. And just hold it up. These are the false teachers that have crept in unnoticed this morning. <laughs> You've brought them in. And they go with you all week long, and they're with you every single day of your life. The false teachers are in your Facebook feed. You see them on Instagram. They're in your Spotify playlist. You watch them on YouTube. Some of them come directly to your inbox, and you read their books on your Kindles. These false teachers have crept in unnoticed. And what are they teaching? Well, I jotted down just a selection of things that I'm hearing these days from false teachers. I, I'll give you this list, nine current perversions of the grace of God. Listen for these when you're listening to other teachers now. Nine current perversions of the grace of God, me at the center of the story. I should never be at the center of the story. And so much of what you're hearing in, in Christian music, you're hearing me at the center of the story and, and teaching that puts you at the center of the story rejected. It's not the gospel. God not knowing things. God knows everything. 
If you hear anything in a song or anything in teaching that gives any hint that there's something that God doesn't know, reject it. It's not the gospel. The dis- any distortions of the Trinity, anything that takes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are three distinct persons within one Godhead who are co-equal in power and glory, anything less than that is a distortion of the gospel. The undermining of the authority of the Scriptures, there are preachers who are actually saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, that it's not as inspired as the new. We need to reject any preacher That's a distortion of the gospel. The gospel is is clear in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament points to the new. And Jesus said, it is these scriptures that speak of me. How could any preacher undermine the authority of scripture? How about this? The elevation of one person to celebrity status. It doesn't exist in the scriptures. And it is a curse on this generation. Political engagement as the means of fulfilling the gospel mission. I've said enough about that one already. Downplaying holy living as the fruit of genuine faith. Anyone who takes a soft position on holiness ought to be rejected. Adding or subtracting from the simplicity of the gospel. Caving into the culture to affirm what is biblically unaffirmable. Reject these false teachers and what they say. So what do we do with that list? How do we develop some principles that are going to help us to recognize this when we hear it? I have a long quote here from Chuck Swindoll, who many of you will know, a longtime Bible teacher on the radio, a local church pastor as well. And uh, Swindoll so highly respected for his... Um, faithful teaching of God's word. And this quote came across and I said, like, I can't say it any better than he said it. Swindoll said this, discernment plays a vital role in surviving the spiritually treacherous times we live in. We must continue. This is going to sound so, this is part of a commentary on 1 John, but I'm telling you, it sounds like Jude. We must continue to value and embrace historical roots and doctrinal truths. Times will change, but not the truth. Methods will change, but not history. Each generation of believers has the serious responsibility to anchor its beliefs anew in the unchanging doctrines laid out in the Scriptures. That's us going back to the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We, We can deconstruct the times. We can deconstruct the methods, but not the doctrines. Then Swindoll gets really practical. If we're going to have any hope of deconstructing our faith in a way that is helpful and reconstructing it solidly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we have to hear this next part. This is what's going to help us. When you encounter new teachers and new ideas, listen carefully to those who are teaching. Listen to what is said and what is not said. Listen to what is conveniently left out Listen to the wording, listen to the subtle phrases, listen to the implications. Then, look closely at those who are following. Do they know their Bibles? Are they serious about their faith? Are they sharing Jesus with others? The answers to these questions will give a strong cause 
to the meaning behind the message. These threats are in the church. That's why we need to contend for the faith. And so Christian, will you do that? Will you contend for the faith by trusting what, what God says about you? By understanding what you believe and with an awareness that the greater threats, the greatest threats are right here in the church. And we're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming weeks in this series. And so I would commend this series to you if the first step in taking this seriously is to commit to hearing all of these messages in this series, to being here or tuning in online, however you're going to do this, but not missing any of the messages in this series. Let me pray for us. Father, we are uh, grateful for your kindness. Father, for your love and for the peace that you give us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for speaking these things to us today. And I pray, Father, first that we would be so encouraged to hear what you've said. But Father, then we would take up the challenge of what Jude has written to us to contend for the faith. For some, Father, here who are not yet believers, that's going to mean surrendering their life to Jesus Christ, confessing their sin, recognizing Jesus as the only Savior that can do anything about it. But for the rest of us who are believers, Father, there's some soul searching that has to take place. Are we serious about this? Are we in a wartime posture with, re with respect to the truth of the gospel? Are we being vigilant right here in the midst of these people, this church that you've entrusted to our hands? So God, help us with this. We need your spirit to show us, to help us with discernment, help us with our commitment to be in your word, and to take this mission seriously. And these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.